You know, we've got somebody that's a legend here tonight. I don't know if you know it or not. I don't know how this church works it out. Nick Brunos. Come up here, Nick. Come over here, man. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. How many of you like southern gospel music? No offense, Erica, but there are going to be four men and a piano in heaven. How many of you like that? Raise your hand. How many of you remember J.D. Sumner and the Stamps Quartet? He was their pianist when they backed up Elvis in Las Vegas for the last seven years of his life. I mean, this guy's a legend. And he loved J.D., don't you? I had the opportunity of leading J.D. Sumner to the Lord. Written 500 gospel songs. Lowest bass singer in the world. I've stood with him when we'd sing. I could smell the alcohol on his breath. I told him one night after I had preached in Nashville, he came to hear me. I said, J.D., have you gotten saved? He said, my brother, church God preacher. I've written 500 gospel songs. I said, I don't care if your brother's a pope. You're going to die and go to hell, and when you die, I'm going to fly, fly to your funeral, laugh all the way through the service, spit on your grave, and say they buried a fool. I'm subtle. <laughs> he called me from Paducah, Kentucky. Bob, about three weeks later, he said, I've just gotten on my knees. I've repented of my sins. I poured all the alcohol down the commode. They won't need you draining around here for another six months. Called his wife, said, I'm going home to you, honey. Mary, been married 43 years. He said, I'm saved. She said, you're drunk again. But they, <laughs> they went on a honeymoon, Hilton Head, South Carolina, and he talked about a wasted life down there. And he was a changed man from that time on. Never drunk any more liquor. Called me about three months after that, said, I got a problem. I said, what's that? He said, for 35 years when I'd ride into town on a bus to sing somewhere, I'd look for the nearest package store and I'd send somebody with $10 to get me a fifth of early times liquor. I don't even want to be tempted anymore. What should I do? He said, I did ask the Holy Spirit. He gave me an answer. I said, what was that? He said, the Holy Spirit said, every time you're tempted to buy liquor with $10, send it to Harold Hunter because he led you to the Lord. I said, J.D., you need to listen to God. <laughs> he bought me a brand new pair of patent leather western boots. You couldn't buy them. Bob, you want to hear? I'm, I'm going to give you something to share. You know what he told me? For 35 years, 250 times a year, he was singing with the Blackwood Brothers of the Stamps in churches that were packed out 250 times a year for 35 years, not one preacher or deacon ever confronted him about the alcohol on his breath. If he said, if they had, I would have gotten saved that night. He said, churches, this J.D. Sumner, swapped their holiness for a little bit of fun. J.D. used to have me, when I would sing with him, Sing a song, I, I, I hate to even be on the same floor there. Boy, doesn't she have a voice? Amen. So I'm going to sing one verse of the song that I'm known for. This is the first time you and I have ever done anything. You used to play this for J.D., didn't you? Now, don't you give that intro you used to give Elvis, because I ain't Elvis. <laughs> but there's a note in it that J.D. wanted me to hold, and it's a long note. If I hold it, you'll have time to go to Wendy's. And if I don't, call my doctor. <laughs> so imagine you're at an all-night singing. How many of y'all ever been to an all-night singing? All the old people. All right, here it is. Let's do it. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see 
the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to you to take your Bibles tonight and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And I want to look at everybody in this building and I want to say something and I want you to hear me very, very well. I am an evangelist. I do not know why I really don't, and I'm not being funny. I do not know why your pastor invited me to come tonight. Other than by the leadership of God, because I believe your pastor is a godly man. Now, since I'm an evangelist, it is my firm conviction that since you and I will likely not see each other again, there is somebody here tonight that it's a desperate hour for you. And you need to do something about your soul in the presence of God. Else why would God have troubled himself to send an evangelist? I want you to look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4. He that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And I want to look at everybody in this building and I want to say something to you. If you say you're saved and you're not doing the commandments of God, you are not saved according to the word of God. You are a liar and the truth is not in you. You say, aren't you a Southern Baptist? Don't you believe in eternal security? I believe in eternal security from the hairspray on the top of my head to the calluses on the bottom of my feet. But the doctrine of eternal security does not give you the license to live like the devil and expect to go to heaven when you die. I want to preach tonight on the deadly decision of being a practical atheist. There are two kinds of atheists in the world. There is the intellectual atheist. The intellectual atheist says you cannot prove God in a lab, you cannot prove God in a test tube, therefore God does not exist. The most famous of all atheists, I suppose, that are intellectual would be the infamous Madeline Murray O'Hare. She is an intellectual atheist. Intellectual atheists are very dangerous. Sometimes early in my evangelistic ministry a few years ago, we would go into a city for a citywide crusade. And those who went before me would set up a debate with the chairman of biology departments in local colleges Quite often I have stood in debate as they tried to 
teach what they teach in the classroom, and that is that biology to them was not just a theory, it was a law. May I tell you, in my opinion, it is neither a law nor a theory. And of course, I would defend the creation account. I learned some things in the debate with one of those in the state of Tennessee. Did you ever wonder why you have a nose right here instead of up here? Did that ever occur to you, wonder why? Well, this intellectual idiot said, back and back and back and back and further back than that. When our ancestors were nothing but little faceless bits of protozoa floating around in some primordial soup, the sun's rays began to work on a freckle on their faceless face and it began to grow and grow and grow and suddenly we had a nose. I said, glory to God. He said, what do you mean? I said, what if that freckle had been on my big toe? I'd have gone around smelling my socks all day. (laughs) Do you know why men get bald-headed and women don't? Well, this intellectual lunatic said, back and back and back and back and further back than that. Our ancestors, the male apes, suddenly discovered that bald-headed male apes were more attractive to the female apes than the male apes that had hair on their head. Now, of course, you knew that all the time, didn't you? (laughs) You see, some of us use head and shoulders. Others of us use mop and glow. (laughs) I asked Aunt Laura, little lady in my first church, in her 80s, I said, Aunt Laura, do you believe what they're teaching in the classrooms about mankind coming by the monkey route? Or do you believe that mankind came from the dust of the earth? She said, oh, I believe all men are made out of dirt. I said, how do you get that, Aunt Laura? She said, you can take any man you want to, rub his neck raw with soap, put a white shirt on him, and in five minutes, he'll have a ring around the collar. I know they're made out of dirt. (laughs) You say, what a stupid woman. Do you want to know who the stupid people are? All of us in here tonight. Do you know why we're stupid? Because we're taking our hard-earned money and we're paying some educated idiots to tell our children that nobody took nothing and made everything. I wish I had me some charismatics. They'd be doing cartwheels. (laughs) Let me say that again. Did that go over your head, choir? Did that go over your head? You know what they're teaching in your schools right here in Lebanon? They're teaching that nobody took nothing and made everything. How many grammar school, middle school, high school, college kids we got here? Would you stand up if you're here tonight? Because on a Friday night, I'm really glad you're here. Stand up good and high. Stand up, stand up. All, there are a lot in the balcony. All right, stand up and all over here. All right, great. Okay, sit down. Now then, out of y'all that sat down, how many of you got a really weird teacher this year, you stand up. Stand up again. (laughs) All of them. Sit down. I have a poem for you to share with that teacher, but don't do it till the summertime because I don't want to have your blood on my hands. Here it is. I once was a tadpole with tail on the end. I became a frog in keeping with trend. I progressed to a monkey swinging from a tree And now I'm a professor with a Ph.D. (laughs) I believe in education, but be careful who you have for a teacher. Why do I not believe in evolution? Because this Bible doesn't teach it. Somebody says that's not a book of science. It is not a book of science, but it is the Word of God. And if it is the Word of God, when it talks about science, it'll be correct too. It is not a book of history, but if it is the Word of God, when it talks about history, it'll be correct. Let me tell you why, biblically, I find it very difficult for a person to be saved and to believe in evolution. 
The evolutionist says there was not a man by the name of Adam. If there was not a man by the name of Adam, then Adam never sinned. If Adam never sinned, then sin was not injected into the human bloodstream. If sin was not injected into the human bloodstream, then we didn't need a sinless Savior to die for us. If we didn't need a sinless Savior to die for us and Jesus did it anyway, then Jesus is a fool. If Jesus is a fool, then he's disqualified to be our Savior. And if Jesus is disqualified to be our Savior, then we don't have a Savior in woe without hope. That's what the intellectual atheist says. But that's not the dangerous atheist. You know what the dangerous atheist is? The practical atheist. The one that comes to church. The one that says he's a Christian. The one that's got his name on a church roll. And I'm not picking on your church. You said you had 2,700 members. Where are they? Where are they? If we had 2,700 tonight, they'd think Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in here giving their testimony. Where are they tonight? Practical atheist. Yes, I believe in God, but you're not going to live like it. And the Bible says if you don't live like it, you're a liar. You say, I don't like that kind of preaching. Another two or three hours, I'll be gone. <laughs> Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. The practical atheist. The practical atheist is the man or woman gets thrilled about the little baby Jesus at Christmas time, gets a lump in their throat at the passion place seeing somebody come down the aisle carrying the cross portraying Jesus. The practical atheist loves the songs of the church, but during the week they're not going to live like they love God. And the practical atheist is disgust in Romans chapter 1 verse 21 because that when they knew God, they glorified him. What does glorification mean? It means to live outside what is on the inside. They couldn't live what was on the inside about God because God really wasn't there. They glorified not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination and the foolish heart was darkened. And so here's a practical, oh, look at me. Here's a practical atheist. He goes to church. He hears Brother Glenn preach. But he's got some sin that he wants to commit. He doesn't want to give up that sin. That's his pet sin. And nobody's going to make him give up that sin. But he doesn't like to tumble and toss at night either. And he doesn't like for his appetite to be taken away. Now he's got two choices. One choice is he can come to an altar, repent of his sins, be cleansed, and then he'll be free and he can serve God and have joy in his heart. But he doesn't want to do that. Because to do that, he's got to give up his sin. So Romans tells us what he does. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God. He changed it. He said the Bible just an old book. It's not relative to me anymore. I don't need the Bible anymore. It, it doesn't mean anything. I don't need the word of God. It's just an old-fashioned book for heaven's sakes. So they changed the truth of God. But then God, God has an answer for that. You change the truth of God, mister. And I believe there's people maybe in the choir. Did you know one of the worst places to be when God is working in a meeting is in a choir wearing a choir robe because everybody thinks you're living for God. So God has an answer for somebody that changes the truth of God. What is it? Look at it, verse 26. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affection. Say those two words. Vile affections. Say them out loud. Vile affections. Okay, what is a vile affection? A vile affection is any kind of desire you have that has no spiritual reason for existence, no physical reason, no psychological reason. There is no reason that you should have that desire. It's a twisted, it's a warped, it's a distorted, it's a vile affection. 
And I want to say to everybody in this building, if you're not saved, you're a ticking time bomb. Because the only thing that kept Bob Pittman from being one of the most corrupt, evil men in the world. And I could say it about myself. You know what it is? It's the indwelling Spirit of God. The, in spirit, the Spirit of God restrains us from sin. And we've got a tidal way of vile affections. Would you like to know what I'm talking about? Child molestation is an epidemic in America. How in the world can anybody get their kicks from molesting a little child. That's a vile affection. We have a 4,000 seat tent. We were in Citrus County, Florida a few years ago. Had 105 churches participating. Huge crowds every night. We had no longer left there. Not very long. You heard and remember the news. A little nine-year-old girl was snatched from the safest place in the world for a nine-year-old girl. Her bedroom. And this wicked, perverse man assaulted her and then buried her alive in a grave with a little stuffed animal. What kind of man can do that? A man that's controlled by vile affections. I was in Dallas, Texas. While I was down there in a meeting, there was a story about a couple that I had an 18-year-old boy and they were eating breakfast and he was sick. He didn't want to eat. Mom got angry. Dad got angry. Each one of them took his hands and they bit his fingernails off. And what didn't come out with a bite, they took wire pliers and pulled them out. And the little fellow was screaming and crying and screaming and crying until the neighbors called the police and as the police were breaking in the door, that mother literally bit a piece of his jaw out so that you could see his teeth. And you say, oh, they were insane. They gave them psychological testing and they were as sane as anybody in this building. You know what their problem was? We need to quit using insanity as a defense. I'll tell you what their problem was. I'll tell you what their problem was. They weren't the victim. They didn't do that because they had a bad childhood. They did it because they decided they were going to twist the word of God. It didn't apply to them and God turned them over to vile affections. You know what another vile affection is? Drugs. I guarantee you could go within a quarter of a mile of this church and find a meth house or a crack house. I was in Carrollton, Georgia in a crusade. I looked down here. There was a man down here. He looked like a walking skeleton. I found out later because he came forward on the third stanza of Just As I Am, threw himself down at the altar and cried out to God and God saved him. But he was hooked on heroin and I've been told you can't get off heroin, but that's what the secular world says. I am telling you tonight, I know for a fact, when that man got saved that night, he went cold turkey on heroin and never touched it again, and that's been 12 years ago. One of the deacons in that church found him. He had overdosed three times but hadn't died. His arms, veins had so collapsed he tried his legs, his legs so collapsed that to get a kick out of it, he would give himself a shot in the carotid artery right here. We got any nurses or doctors here? Raise your hand. I'm going to tell you something, sir. If I'm ever one of your patients, I'm going to tell you something. You come at me with a shot, there's one thing you'll never hear me say, goody, 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 I'm about to get a shot. <laughs> it's a vile affection. That man, by the way, 12 years ago, and he's led 42 other drug addicts to the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in rehab, but I'm going to tell you something, brother. You give a drug addict or an alcoholic a good old dose of God-sent regeneration, it'll change them all over. Let me tell you another vile affection. Smoking. Now, I know somebody leaned over and said, I knew Martha, he was going to get around that soon. I knew he was going to get around to smoking. <laughs> Smoking's a vile affection. There's nothing about you biologically that makes you want to light up a Chesterfield. 
There's nothing about you biologically. Want you to get another shoe down at the convenience store. There's nothing about you psychologically, physically. You don't need that. And if you think I'm picking on you, let me tell you something. My daddy was a sock drunkard. Yeah, that's what he called himself. He was on liquor. He loved liquor. Until he got saved, a Sunday school teacher led him to the Lord. And my daddy, the, the day that he got saved, he never touched that stuff again. But he never was able to break that nicotine habit. He smoked three packs a day for 55 years, and that is what killed him. And I want to tell you something, mister. You can be the greatest spiritual influence in anybody's life. My daddy, who was one of the worst of the worst, became one of the best of the best and one of my greatest spiritual heroes, but he never could break that cigarette habit, and it finally killed him. And as he lay dying, the doctor said, his lungs are like burnt roast beef. My mother lived another 15 years. She never touched a cigarette in her life, but guess what killed her? Secondhand smoke. My daddy would turn over in his grave if he knew his sweetheart had died because of that vile affection. And after I preach in a meeting, I'll be standing out on the porch and some old boy will come up and his mouth smells like a wet tobacco warehouse. I'm going to tell you folks something. Are you listening to me? I'm going to tell you, if you're a smoker, I'm going to tell you something nobody else will tell you. You stink. You stink. And sometimes when I'm looking at this old boy and he's, preacher, I just love that preaching. I love that preaching. I really love that preaching. I just want to have some certs and go, ching, ching, ching. <laughs> I had a guy down in Atlanta. He came out. I'd preached along this line. He said, well, I don't care what you say. I've got Jesus in my heart just as much as you do. I said, you better be glad he's in your heart. If he's in love, you're alone. You'd have smoked him out. Amen, preacher. That's good preaching. Go on with it. <laughs> when airplanes had smoking sections, last three or four rows, invariably, I'd sit next to a 350-pound man that was lighting up a lucky strike. Invariably, that would happen to me. And I'd come out of that thing smelling. A friend of mine gave me a business card. And he said, take this card and hand it to him. You know what that card said? I notice you smoke. Please notice I chew. If you won't blow on me, I won't spit on you. <laughs> we were under our 4,000 tent down in Nashville, Arkansas. Brother Bob, I looked at a young man sitting two or three rows behind you. He was disfigured. He had no jaw from here down. All he had was his upper teeth. That young man was the number one Major League Baseball pitching prospect to come out of Arkansas in 25 years, according to the pastor. But he got to using smokeless tobacco, young people. A little sore popped up, then something else happened. Finally, it was cancer, and they had to cut it out. Not only did he destroy his future, but he later died. Is there another vile affection? Yeah, alcohol. Alcohol, every drop of it. It's a, it's a vile affection. Did you know USA Today said that last year, for every human being in America, there were 34 and a half gallons of beverage alcohol sold for every man, woman, boy, girl in America. 34 and a half gallons. I never understood why anybody would want to put anything in their belly and make them act so stupid in their head. I was doing an apartment visitation one day and there was a drunk trying to get into his apartment. He opened the door. Aluminum door, hit him in the toe, bang him in the head. Hit him in the toe, bang him in the head. He looked over at me and said, something wrong with this door. <laughs> he got down, worked on the hinge, got up, said, I got it fixed now. Hit him in the toe, bang him in the head. 
How many of you are Baptists? Raise your hand. You might get away with it if you're a Methodist. But I'm going to tell you something. We've got a church covenant. And the church covenant says you're not to have to anything to do with that stinking stuff. And if you want proof of that, let me tell you what you do. You get your early times liquor port and a sausage put it on your back porch. There's not a self-respecting dog, cow, cat, or anything come and get any of it. But you can get an old Baptist come by and say, hey, I got free liquor. Let me tell you another wild affection. Look what the Bible says here in Romans chapter 1. Verse 26, for this cause gather them up into vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman. I want everybody to look at me. Are you looking at me? Say, I'm looking at you. One of the vile affections is homosexuality and lesbianism. Now, Ezekiel did not say that the sin of Sodom Sodom was homosexuality. Most people think that. He said it was too much bread, too much leisure time, too much wealth. They turned their back on God. They did exactly what Romans 1 says here. And when they turned their back upon God, he turned them over to vile affection. Are you listening? Say we're listening. Homosexuality, in my opinion, is not as much a sin as it is a judgment of God upon a man that chose sin. Now we've got actors and actresses in America that tout their homosexuality. Margaret Mead was one of the greatest anthropologists that ever lived, maybe the greatest. I don't know that she was even saved. A few years ago when she died, you know what she said? She said, this is the first time since Sodom and Gomorrah that civilization has said it's perfectly all right to use homosexuality as a valid alternative lifestyle. Well, Margaret Mead, I don't care what you say or a president says or a social engineer says or the Congress says, I want you to know what the Bible says. The Bible says it's a sin. But I'm going to tell you something breaks my heart. I don't like to hear preachers get up and make jokes about homosexuals. There's parents out there that your children are suffering in it. And those parents are worried and all you're doing is pouring coals upon them. Shame on you, preacher. Let's just get this thing down to where it is. It took as much of the blood of Jesus Christ to wipe away the sins of the most virtuous woman in your church as it does the vilest homosexual. And don't you ever forget that. But I had a homosexual one time say, and now, Brother Harold, I just don't believe that you can show me in the Bible where it's impossible for me to be a practicing homosexual and be a Christian. I don't think you can find that. I think I can be a Christian and be a practicing homosexual, and you can't find it in the Bible. I said, really? Turn over to 1 Corinthians, if you will, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Shall not inherit. Be not deceived, neither fornicators. By the way, I'm going to be very plain tonight, but I won't be crude. Take your pencil and circle fornicators. Commonly, we think of that as premarital sex. Nor idolaters, nor idolaters, circle that. Commonly, we think of that as extramarital sex. Nor effeminate. Do you know what effeminate is in the Greek? Effeminate is a passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That's an active partner in a homosexual relationship. How did the verse start out? Know ye not? They're not going to heaven, those who practice this. And then look what it says. Verse 11, and such were some of you. We got any school teachers here? Raise your hand. I believe were is a past tense verb, isn't it? You used to be that. You're not that anymore. You used to be a homosexual. You're not anymore. You used to be a fornicator. You're not anymore. You used to be a thief. You're not anymore. You used to be an idolater. You're not anymore. Those that have been saved, those that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, those that have turned their back upon a lifetime of sin have been changed. You are a new creature in Christ. All right, young people, listen. Verse 13, meats for the belly. 
And the male for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now, the underline this. Now, the body is not for fornication. Premarital sex. Are you listening? Your body was not created for premarital sex. Doesn't matter to me what the television people say. Do you remember when Oprah Winfrey had her program on? I'd see Baptist women go into epilepsy trying to get home from Good Springs to see Oprah. What if you had had the Apostle Paul, dear lady, over to your house to have lunch? And so you have your sandwich and have some sauerkraut and strawberry ice cream or whatever. And you're sitting there and you say, Paul, why don't you kick back in the recliner? And let's watch a little Oprah. A, lot of, a little what? Let's watch a little Oprah. And all of a sudden, here's this handsome man comes walking out. Who's that? Well, that's Stedman Graham. Now, who is Stedman Graham? Is that her husband? Well, well, no. Is it her fiance? Well, no. Well, who is it? Well, that's the man she's living with. You know what Paul would do? What? What are you doing as a Christian watching that? Why are you letting a harlot give you some kind of entertainment? My wife and I walk out of so many movies, they know when we come in and buy a ticket, it may not be so long. (laughs) All we got to have is one profane word and we're out of there. How many times have your children come home or preacher, how many times have somebody say, you ought to go see this movie? Now, preacher, just want to be honest. They just one little bad sex scene in it. Maybe just one little word. But, but preacher, that's all there is other than that. It's a great movie. How many of y'all like chocolate chip cookies? Raise your hand. I've got a great recipe. The next time you get, get your pencil out, write down. Next time you're going to eat chocolate chip cookies, go out into the backyard and get just a little pinch of dog dew. <laughs> Why, you're a fanatic. You won't even be. Why are you doing that? You won't even be able to taste it. You won't even know that it's there. Why are you acting like that? If that makes you sick at your stomach, what's the difference in that than going to a movie and hearing somebody defame the name of the Son of God who died for you to keep you out of hell? What's the difference in it? I don't know why you'd pay good money to go into the theater and let somebody cuss you out. I can go into some deacon's meetings. They'll do it for nothing. Now look at this. Verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. Now underline God forbid. Anytime you see those two words, that's the greatest expression of revulsion that you're going to find in the New Testament. You know what he's saying here? All right, look at me. Now, I'm not going to be crude, but I'm going to be plain. You know what he's saying here? If you're saved, Jesus lives inside of you. And you take some other man's wife down here to some cheap Motel 6, and you spend the night with her, you know what you've done? You've taken Jesus Christ into that hotel room and he's having with disgust to participate in that vile act with you. And Paul said, that is so dirty. That is so filthy. He said, God forbid. Now I want to say to every young person here, God created sex. And it's a beautiful thing in the right place. Brother Bob, suppose I came down and you said, I got a friend down here in Muscle Shoals. Don't you take out to his farm? And we go out there and the farmer says, I worked hard. Pick up a handful of that dirt. I'm a city boy. Pick up a handful of that. Preacher, that's the best dirt I believe in the whole state of Alabama. This is great dirt right here, man. This is wonderful dirt. Really? Oh, yeah, I worked hard. And suppose we drive home and I walk into Brother Bob's home and I say, Miss Pittman, I want to show you something. This is the best dirt in Alabama. And I throw it on the carpet. Now, after I pick myself up off the sidewalk, 
You know what you'd say to me? It's the best dirt in Alabama in the right place. This is not the right place. The right place for sex is only one place. Between a godly man and a godly woman in their bed for the rest of their lives. That's it. I got to hurry. How many teenage girls we got here you haven't started dating yet? Look what the Bible says, verse 18. Flee fornication. I want to give advice to every girl that's not dated yet. Before you have that first date, go down to Target, buy the best pair of sneakers that you can buy. You may need them. The Bible says, flee fornication. Well, now, Brother Harold, how am I going to win him to the Lord? You know, there's something happens when a girl hits 16. I've never figured it out. Something goes wrong in their mind. I don't know what it is. If you're worried about winning him to the Lord, honey, the next time you have a date, invite your pastor to go along with you and sit in the back seat. I had a 16-year-old girl one time come to me. Oh, Brother Harold, Brother Harold, I've, I've got to ask you a question. I said, what? I'm in love. Are you, what? I'm in love. My boyfriend, I love him. He loves me. Because we love each other, there's nothing wrong with us having a physical relationship. And he told me that I could ask you and you couldn't give him a good reason that it's not all right for us to have a physical relationship. I said, really? <laughs> I said, let me tell you something, honey. I know your daddy and he's one of the most godly deacons I ever met. Let me tell you what you do. The next time your boyfriend says, there's no way that you can prove to him it's wrong, say, all right, I tell you what. I'm going to call my daddy and let you talk to him. You tell him what you want to do with me. And if it's all right with my daddy, it'll be all right with me. (laughs) Amen, men. How many fathers we got here? Amen, fathers. Now, I'm coming close to conclusion. But what I'm about to say here is worth the price of admission. Verse 18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doth is without the body. But he that committed fornication sinneth against his own body. And I couldn't figure out what that meant. I went to the commentaries. I what does it mean to sin against your own body? I, I couldn't understand that. Are you listening? Say we're listening. Are you really listening? Say we're really listening. I can tell you what it means. One of the finest couples in our church years ago came to my office. And this is what they said. Brother Harold, you know we're in church every time that it was and we love each other. We love each other. But we can't afford to get married. But if we move in together, we can live together and we'll be able to pay our bills. Now I want to tell you something. If anybody ever tells you that two can live as cheap as one, they're lying to you. Unless one of them don't want to wear any clothes and one of them don't want to eat and one of them... And this is what they said. They said, preacher, all marriage is is signing a document and putting a ring on each other's finger and the love won't change. We'll love each other just as much afterwards as we do now. There's no way that that's going to make any difference. You ever had anybody tell you that? Raise your hand. I'm going to give you the answer. There's two words in the Bible that sound very similar. One is body and one is flesh. Your body is this thing right here, the skin and the hair and the bone. That's your body. And when it comes to physical relationships, your body enjoys that physical relationship. But then you have flesh. Now, flesh is not your body. Flesh is that ungodly desire that you'll carry with you for the rest of your life. You know what flesh likes? Rebellion against God. So let me tell you what happens. You say it's not going to make any difference because all it is is just a marriage license. So you get married. Here's your problem. The body's satisfied, but the flesh isn't. Because now it's legitimate. Now it's within the will of God. Now you're doing what God said to do. And the flesh says, I 
I don't like that. I'm not satisfied. That's the reason men have to get married, start looking at sites on the internet they ought not look at because that flesh is trying to be satisfied. See, it was satisfied. You had it under control before you got married. You don't have it under control. You've released it. Now it's out of control. That's the reason that sweet little thing down at the penny store begins to look good to you. Now I want to look at everybody in this building because I got to close. I want to look at you. Those vile affections are horrible things. But I sincerely, sincerely believe, I sincerely believe that God can forgive every one of them. And if you're guilty of them, God can forgive you of all of those. I don't think that's what's sending the majority of people to hell. Especially people who attend church. You know what I think? And I think Adrian Rogers said it real well. There are people in the pew that are strutting their way to hell thinking they're too good to go there. I'm looking at people tonight. Look at me. I would never cause anybody to doubt their salvation. I'll never do that. God knows I'll never do that. But at the same time, I want to tell you something. If you've lived in prolonged question about whether you've been born again or not, and you wake up in the middle of the night and you can sense the devil in the bedroom, I don't care how good you are. I don't care if you've never committed one of these vile sins. I'm going to tell you something. I wouldn't leave this building tonight before I settled it before Almighty God. There's an illustration that I promised a woman 30 years ago I would share. Some of you have heard it. I'm going to share it tonight. There was a wife called me to the intensive care unit of a very great Southern Baptist pastor. Not all of you, but if I mentioned his name, some of you would know who I'm talking about. He was an old man by now. He had built a great church, preached around the world in conferences and revivals. And I walked in and he looked at me and he said, Brother Harold, don't pray for me to get well. I know I'm going to die. Pray for me because unless I get saved, I'm going to hell. And I'm talking about a man, Bob, that did more for Christ, I know personally did more for Christ than all the preachers of all the denominations in Wilson County. And I said, I don't understand any of this. He said, when I was 19 years of age, there was a girl that I wanted to marry. But the only way that I could get her was by being a Christian. So then one Sunday, I went down the aisle of her church. But I didn't go down that aisle to get saved. I went down that aisle to get that girl, and I got her. They put me to teach in Sunday school, and I taught it. And it grew and grew and grew. Then the pastor asked me to supply the pulpit, and I did that. I've been to Bible college. I've been to seminary. But I never got around to taking care of it for me. I pulled out a copy of the Roman Road's soul winning track. He was leading people to the Lord using that track before I was ever born. Now look at me, folks. I'm talking about a man that didn't have any tarnish on his name. Great soul winner, built a great church, wrote books. When I got through, he got on his knees by his bed like a child saying his nighttime prayers. Put his hands together. This was the last time he was ever out of bed. Oh, God, started crying. I don't want to go to hell. I repent of my sins. Oh, God, save me. He crawled back into bed, laid down on his back, crossed his hands. I said, brother, I don't understand any of this. But thank God you got saved. He looked at me and he said, I didn't get saved. I said, I just heard you pray the sinner's prayer. Are you listening? He said, preacher, five years ago, I was standing in the pulpit of my big church. I was having an invitation for lost folks to come and be saved. And the Spirit of God touched my heart and said, you're not even saved. 
And he said, I wasn't going to step down and admit that. That would embarrass my church. It would embarrass my family. It would embarrass me. Everybody knew me as a great preacher. So I didn't do it. And he said, that day when I stepped from that platform, the Spirit of God took his flight and has never returned. Are you listening? He said, preacher, Romans 10 says this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy what? Believe in thy what? And he took his hands. I can believe it in my mind. I can believe it in my mind, but I can't believe it in my heart. A few days later, he died. You say, did he go to heaven or hell? That's not for me to say. I don't know. All I know is when it comes my time to die, I, know, I want to know where I'm going. Amen. And I want my people, my friends, to know where I'm going. John 14, 27, Jesus said, I give you my peace. Do you have the peace of God? Amen. Look at me. I've got a rare blood disease. A few years ago, our team concluded a crusade, area crusade in Collins, Mississippi. We had over 400 saved. Thursday morning, getting ready to go home, I began to cush, gush blood through my colon. I called my hematologist, Mayo Clinic. He said, Harold, you may have seven minutes. How far are you from a major hospital? I said, an hour and 15 minutes. He said, I don't think you'll make it. That preacher was driving. My wife was in the back seat. Obviously, we made it. Look at me. Not one single time did I doubt that if I died, I wouldn't make it to heaven. It was as real to me. You say, oh, you're bragging on yourself. No, I'm not either. I'm bragging on that book. Not too long ago, I woke up in the middle of the night. I gushed, doctor. I gushed, believe it or not, three units of blood in about a minute and a half through my colon. I called 911 because I figured I'd be dead. My wife would need them. Never had a question as to where I'd be. I want to look at everybody in this building. I've preached about vile affections. If you're guilty of that, you better do something about it. And if you continually commit them and you've not repented and God hadn't chastised you, you can only come to one conclusion. You're lost. But more than that, I want to talk to good people. None of you are as good as that preacher. I'm not. But he played with God. There's some of you that you have played with the Spirit of God. And he's come into your bedroom at night. He's invaded you at night. And some of you, right now tonight, you're sitting there and you don't have peace with God. I'm telling you something. I would not leave this room without it. I'm telling you. God called me to be an evangelist and for some reason on a Friday night I'm down here. I believe that means somebody better get it right with God. I don't think he wastes time. 